Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Thanks for listening to episode 250. This is part one of a discussion with guest Todd Cochran. He's the CEO and founder of Blueberry Podcasting and also a member of the Podcasting Hall of Fame. How fitting that this is released shortly after Veterans Day 2023 because you're going to hear about Todd's experience in his 20 plus years of service in the U.S. Navy. He had a deep electronic expertise that he brought to his work on naval aircraft as part of something called Special Projects. During this time, Todd also learned the principles of program management that he applied not only in his time at the Navy, but in some of the things he did later. You're going to hear a consistent theme of tinkering with technology, how a catastrophic injury changed what Todd did in his work. And we'll also learn about how Todd got into podcasting. And how did Todd get from being a podcaster to being a business owner? And what were some of the challenges of running that business while still serving in the Navy? And then once you're a business owner, how do you know when it's time to diversify or shift the focus of the company because of changing market conditions? The only way to get the deets is to keep listening. So here we go with part one of our discussion with Todd Cochran. Todd Cochran, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm I'm with the fellow nerds, so it's like I'm excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do today? And then maybe we'll uh, back into how you got there. Yeah. So today I'm the founder and CEO of Blueberry Podcasting, which is a full service podcast host. We work with, uh, I think at, the, at this time, it's about 100,000 shows at a variety of levels between them using us for hosting, using us for analytics, or even using our PowerPress plugin for WordPress. So it kind of runs the gambit. But uh, yeah, we're a full-service podcast hosting platform and uh, have a team of about 17. So we're, we're pretty small, but we've been at this now since, really since 2005, which is kind of crazy. We use Blueberry statistics and definitely use PowerPress. Awesome. You're definitely hit up upon an area where people needed a clean and easy way to turn WordPress uh, sites into uh, podcast feeds so that it was very clean. And then some of the additional uh, um, add-ons also, I think, can be extremely valuable. Can you tell us a little bit about your kind of journey into the tech space? Maybe rewinding a little bit. Yeah, I can, you know, really can go back to the 80s, to be honest with you. In both tech school and high school, I took two years of electronics. And uh, 1983, then I joined the Navy. 
and become my, my official job title was an aviation electronics technician, but it was kind of a twist. I fell into a pretty cool job where I was actually uh, flying as a, not a pilot, but I was a back end operator in a P3 aircraft, but not traditional P3 aircraft. They were more intelligence based collection platforms. So I really did that uh, heavily for 25 years and was really got exposure when I was involved with what was termed at the time special projects to, you know, as box du jour, you know, someone would show up, especially after 9-11, people would show up with a box that would do a specific function. I would uh, do the designs, mechanical and electrical engineering designs to put them in the airplane. And sometimes those boxes would be flying and doing what they did within a couple of days of, you know, someone showing up with box du jour. But uh, my real true Navy background with synthetic aperture radar. That's something that I worked on for many, 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 many years, primarily with uh, Sandia National Labs. So I had a pretty deep electronics tech stuff. And along with that whole time period, I had dabbled in running a bulletin board in the days of when there was dial-up that was happening. And I was, you know, even living in Guam, we were trying to figure a way to tunnel back to the United States and pulled down at the time shareware. So I really was kind of a geek in, in all aspects of job and kind of uh, life. And when the bulletin board era died and uh, I basically became a, a blogger, I was a failed blogger. I wasn't a great blogger. You know, there might've been 300 people that read the website. And that is, I think that was about 2002, maybe a little earlier. Yeah, probably 2002. And then I just landed in this podcasting thing in 2004. So, but I continued to work a regular J-O-B. When I retired from the Navy in, in 2007, I actually spent 12 years doing a tech rep job. So I was basically from the seat that I left when I was active duty to the seat that I sit down as a civilian. It's really the same desk, just with 90 days of separation and continue to assist the Navy and the people that I was working with and all the way up to 2019, while at the same time running a company on the side. And needless to say, those, those were some exciting years because there was not a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> so from a technical standpoint, uh, really, I've been out of aviation just a short period of time, probably four years, but at the same time running this business that entire time. Does the Navy have... I'm trying to think of the term. I think it's a warrant officer program. They do. Is Was that part of what you were involved in? No, I, w I retired as a senior chief, as an EA. Oh, okay. And uh, so I was enlisted all the way up through. I had the opportunity to go warrant officer, but just decided to just was happy being a chief in the Navy as a, as a termit. Then really what ended up happening was I hit higher tenure. So I could have stayed into 26 years and I punched out it. In 2007 at 25 and some change it was largely because they had a job offer for me. They said, Hey, we want you to come back as a civilian. So I took that opportunity and, and made the, made the swap. But you know, it was pretty exciting because, uh, I got to see a lot of high end technology, a lot of stuff that I can't talk about for 95 years. <laughs> uh, of course I'll be dead and gone before they unclassify a lot of it. Things were changing so fast at that time. It, it was amazing how, the technology from, you know, when I joined in 1983 to, you know, when I retired, how much advancements was made and 
you know, some of the stuff that's going on today with AI and GPU, we, we were taking advantage of GPUs in those early days of GPUs being available. It really transformed a lot of stuff. I was going to say, it almost sounds like designing those boxes in the airplanes was sort of like being either a product designer or a product manager in a way. Can you tell us if there are any similarities to that? You know, as the designer, did you hold the cards for owning the design soup to nuts or was it more of a collaborative exercise? My degree is with Emory Riddle. I have a professional aeronautics degree with a minor in program management. So, you know, a lot of that work was really based on a lot of program management skills. But typically, for what I can say on the systems that we owned, that the Navy owned, that we built and had designed, we had input into what capabilities we wanted, what features we wanted, software review. It was a full scheme. Some of the systems were born from an idea, built, designed, UI, UX, the whole nine yards that uh, I was able to have a hand touch in. That was a team, so it wasn't just me. But in the end, those last probably 15 years, again, oftentimes, like I said, someone would show up with a, or we would know it's coming, but someone would show up with a box. And then we would have to uh, essentially wire it in. You know, it, some of the stuff, sometimes it was as simple as a computer. Uh, sometimes it was as complex as tying into multiple systems and having interaction with other parts of the platform. So that was the uniqueness of the job. You just never knew from day to day what was going to. And in sometimes we'd get a call from a, you know, a national company that you would know, like Lockheed or someone like that. And we'd have relationships with these folks, but there would be all of a sudden say, hey, we've got something interesting we want you to see. And so our job was really to kind of test and evaluate and more importantly, in a real world situation, not necessarily on some range. Man, that's so fascinating. It was, it was fun. And we were unique in that typically, if you think about aviation and when you have, let's just, you know, let's talk about a commercial aircraft like a 787 or 777. You know, they're all built exactly the same. Now, the electronic components in the cockpit may be a little bit different based upon the package a customer buys, but that airframe and all that stuff is pretty much the same, and they can, they can, they, they punch them out. Supply chain is set up so that if, you know, you need a part, you, sometimes you just walk over the airplane next to you and get that part if you want to rob it. But our situation was, is it was, everything was unique, and uh, configuration control across multiple airplanes was critical. So every, every airplane was different in, in a sense. There was not one that was exactly the same. And sometimes it was a situation where we were upgrading multiple airplanes at a time. Matter of fact, in 2004, I got hurt pretty bad in a swimming pool accident in Bahrain, and it grounded me. I couldn't fly no more. And this is kind of the genesis story of the podcast. I was stuck in Waco, Texas, working at L3, and I was basically doing contract enforcement. I was making sure that our taxpayers' dollars were being spent wisely and monitoring aircraft builds. So I got that basically government slash civilian interaction. And sometimes you often hear about the, you know, the $800 toilet or something to that or a hammer. And my job was really to prevent that type of an activity from happening. So for that aspect, it was really this, it was a very, very cool thing to do for a few years. And having that, you know, that insight to both the developments, actually right on the ground, someone putting a wire into an, an aircraft all the way to d 
delivery of the aircraft and test and everything that went along with it. And did you have to sort of sell that design idea to other people in your in your teams from a, hey, we should do it this way? Well, you know, what it would be is we would, the team was multifaceted in multiple locations. We had people like in Navair uh, in Paxor, Maryland, and we had teams spread all over the place. And oftentimes each specific system would have their own reviews and discussions and planning. And it's all about money too, what's in the budget, what, what can be done within the time frame and within, within budget. So it really was a complete team effort. And you had subject matter experts. I was a SME in a, a specific systems. So I, I publicly talked about my background uh, was in electronic warfare, radar, synthetic aperture radar. That was kind of my, my background was what I did for many, many years while I was active duty. So, and then there was SMEs that subject matter experts that were in different, they would be in charge of different systems or be the, be the expert for different systems. So, and the relationship was interesting because not only was I working with the team for whatever system we were putting in at the same time, I was supporting the sailor that was out deployed somewhere and called back and say, Hey Todd, I got a problem. And then we would troubleshoot or sometimes I'd have to fly out and assist a, a fix, whatever it may have been. So it was, it was multifaceted. Not only was I, you know, working on design and implementation, I was also supporting the platform when it was out doing what it was doing or when the platform was home. And that's you know, why I spent so many years in Hawaii. It was, I was in Hawaii for, for 25 years. It's so analogous to the IT generalist life in my mind. You know, the IT piece of it, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because you're dealing with a lot of software, right? And you're dealing with software that, you, you know, it would be very bad for someone to be able to infiltrate that software. So, you know, there was all kinds of gatekeeping going on as well to make sure that that software was well protected. And you know, the IT guys actually drove us the most crazy because as time, things advance, locking the system down, locking it deeper down, locking it deeper you know, and sometimes so they lock it so deep that it would break something. But, you know, that that's par for the course. Yeah, there's always that natural friction between security, functionality, scalability, all the different things, cost. But, it, you know, I think it set me up good, too, because when I left, when I resigned my federal position and came on to work full time with the company, I still had this, you know, I'd had 10 years, 12 years as a civilian and 25 years in the military. So for me, the transition was pretty smooth from military to civilian because I'd worked with civilians a lot. So I wasn't, I didn't have this mindset of someone that maybe just came out of the military that never had a lot of civilian interaction. So for my transition was very, very smooth. And then running the company, I was already well prepped uh, and had been running it basically as my part-time job, essentially, which was a challenge, too, to separate, I guess the better word is church and state. You know, when I was at work for the Navy, I was work for the Navy. And when I was doing my business, I had to make sure that there was no overlap because that would be a conflict of interest, very bad. Um, matter of fact, security clearance reviews were very deep into looking at how I separated that. And I literally, because I couldn't have my phone in the office, my phone would stay in my car. And if I needed to do a business call, I could do it at lunch or, or after work. So there was this uh, melding of two things. And they, and they knew what I was doing. It wasn't, it wasn't hidden. Matter of fact, I had to have permission to, 
to do what I was doing the way I was doing it. So, you know, work at work was work and then business was on the side to business. But when I transitioned, it really made me realize I should have probably done it about 10 years earlier because I needed a little more stick and rudder on the business that we were building on the podcasting side. So for literally the last four years now, my job is really coordinating with the software development team and the production and marketing team, make sure all that stuff is flowing. So the project management piece has come in pretty handy to be able to flow everything. And we work in Scrum at the company. So I'm essentially, even though I'm the owner, I'm essentially Scrum master as well. So it's kind of crazy. It sounds like the program management skills that you were practicing really uh, came into to good use there. I, I'm just wondering maybe if you can tell us a little bit about that origin story of, you know, you're doing avionics systems in the Navy and then boom, here's this podcasting company. Yeah. What was the nugget there? The, uh, the thing that everything crystallized around? I'm, like I said, I'm out in Waco, Texas. I'm in a body clamshell because I'd broke my L1 vertebrae, smashed it in sense. I had a you know surgery and H brace and was really, to be honest with you, lucky to be able to walk because I had such huge displacement in my spinal cord during the, the swimming pool accident. And, you know, just being able to walk, I was pretty pleased that I was still alive and I was functioning. But in Texas in October, it's, it's hot. <laughs> you know, it's a hundred and shade. Because I, I was working at a, a plant, and the plant has no air conditioning on the floor. I had air conditioning in my office. So by the time I get done with the day, I was just wrung out. So I was spent a lot of time in my hotel room on the laptop, you know, just kind of surfing the internet. And I happened upon Adam Curry and Dave Weiner's Daily Source Code, which was really a Genesis, kind of one of the few Genesis shows for podcasting. And, you know, here I am, a tech blogger who literally has almost no one reading the site. And I said, I like to talk. <laughs> so I literally went over to Walmart and picked up a $14 lab tech, horrible microphone. I mean, it was the worst you could possibly buy and uh, started recording a podcast. And because I was a geek already and understood XML and some of the stuff that you had to know in those early days, pretty short order, I was up online. And then really the the eureka moment came is when I woke up one morning and my web host has said, Hey, you're out of bandwidth. <laughs> We've shut you down. And I'm like, what, you know, how did that happen? And because there was no blueberries at the time, the only way to fix that was to throw money at it and buy more shared hosting accounts. And there's a whole story about moving the show around uh, every three days, just to keep it online because, you know, that's what we had to do in those days. And I think what ended up happening was, it was unique in that that was October, October 9th. Matter of fact, fast coming up on my 19th year anniversary of doing podcasting. And I, of course, I come back to Hawaii and I tell my wife, hey, I'm doing this podcasting thing. And you know, she just kind of rolls her eyes. And what's that? You know, because no one knew what the word meant and put a little finger at me. And she says, you know, you, you got to figure out how to make money with this for the first couple and within a couple of years or I'm going to you know, cut you off because I'm spending a lot just to keep the show online. So that progressed to an email I got in November from a small publishing company called Wiley. Didn't even know who they were, to be honest with you. I was not an English major. I was a nerd, you know. So when I write, uh, even today, Grammarly is my best friend. They asked me to write the first book on podcasting. And basically, my response to them was, you know, you got to be beeping kidding me. 
And they said, no, we're not kidding. Uh, why don't you go look us up? And I did. And, and then ultimately that ended up with a contract. So I got an advance. I, I fixed the money issue right away. I think they gave me like 13 grand or something like that to write the book. And then that led to me starting a network. Then the network led to really ultimately in June of 2005, GoDaddy called me. GoDaddy's still the sponsor of my Genesis show, Geek News Central. And they said, hey, we, you know, we'd love to sponsor your podcast. And so I did a month with them, it really not knowing how much to charge because no one was doing advertising. It was one of the first, you know, half handful of advertising deals. I, don't, I wasn't the first, but very, very close. And they came back to me in July and said, hey, uh, we want to renew you for a year. And I was like, oh, how did we do? And it was like 370 customers we converted. And, you know, I, I kind of said, okay, let's, let me work the math on this and I'll talk to you tomorrow. So, you know, here's one of those things where you have to understand your, your worth. And I really had no idea what my worth was. And I called back the following day and I, I dropped the number and she agreed, like, use car salesman when you bid too high. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, she says, yeah, you underbid it, didn't you? And I, and I said, well, I said, I just out of the blue, I said, you know, I said, how about a bonus if I do over a certain amount? And she laughed and she worked with me and we got a deal together. And the pivotal moment was, and this is what people really have to listen for, for opportunities that present themselves. I was a solo podcaster doing a show, building an audience. And she said to me, do you know anyone else that would like to advertise with GoDaddy? I said, hmm, yes, I do. Give me a couple of weeks. Now, I built this tech network, so I already had 12 or 13 shows that I could immediately represent. And it was one of those deals where, okay, I'll take a percentage of that. And on my next podcast, I said, I need a lawyer. I need an MBA. I need a graphics guy. And I need a programmer. And we're having a call in 10 days. If you're one of those, be on it. 10 days later on freeconferencecall.com at the time, we did a conference call and a lawyer was on the line, a graphics guy and an NBA. And the graphics guy knew a programmer. I said, get him on the phone. And in the end, we formed Raw Voice, which is the parent company for Blueberry, over the telephone. And we all had regular jobs. So everyone was working this at night and we built this and profitable from month one even though we did dig into our pockets to kind of, you know, get some startup money going. We never went to Silicon Valley and did that route. Well, I did, but they told me I was too old at 40. They said, you're too old to get around and you, your team would have to move to Silicon Valley. And yeah, you know, that wasn't happening because everyone was, were grownups and they had families. So that's the genesis story of how the business got started and the podcast too. So kind of one thing led to the other. But the one thing that we're always smart with is we knew that we had to have money in the bank. We knew we had to be profitable. We knew we had to make payroll because, you know, I didn't have $25 million of VC to use. We had to build this slowly. And that's what we did over the years. We built it slowly and never extended ourselves too far. So it sounds like there's a couple things that I can pick out there that, that really under jump out at me. Like one is this idea that you had identified a kind of technology wave that was coming along. You were passionate about the thing that you were doing that coincided with this technology wave. And you kind of made a bet. You made a bet that, you know, I can, 
I mean, there's probably a couple different ways you could have gone. You could have maybe gone to work for somebody who was looking to monetize in this place, but you made a bet that, you know, this is probably a business that because of where I am and the structures that I set up already, I could turn this into a business without too much work as opposed to somebody who was starting like somebody who's going from a cold start right you you had really warmed it up already i had you know i had definitely warmed it up but believe me we made it up as we went because there was some stuff that we threw against the wall that those ideas didn't stick our first product was uh, abject failure but it, we learned from that product and we made a shift and changed our model and i think uh, one of the takeaways i've always done is we build a lot of stuff. And if something is not working, I, I don't dwell on it. I don't, I don't ride that ship into the ground. We, we move on. Maybe we keep the product, maybe we don't. Um, so that's been, I think a lot of times people that are running a business or in the tech center, they get so focused. They think this is the idea. This has got to work because I believe it and I love it. And then what happens? They, they burn every last dollar that they have and, and don't shift early enough. And that was one thing that happened with us too, is we were in the beginning years, we were basically a media agency. We were representing podcasters or ad deals. All the shows were small. The biggest shows maybe were 50,000 listeners. And matter of fact, we didn't even know that number until we built a system to measure shows. That was one of our first, second projects we did. And we introduced that in 2006. What we started to see after a number of years in business is the average, as shows were coming online, like Adam Carolla and others, the money, the advertising money, I saw my budget starting to shrink and that money was being redistributed into those bigger shows. Even though we were still having huge success, it's easier for someone to go into a boss and say, hey, I've got Adam Carolla that's going to run advertising for us versus, oh, I got this dude named Todd that's got uh, 400 small shows that the boss says, ooh. So the money started rolling out and we did a strategic shift to become a service provider. So as the advertising revenue was declining, the service business kind of crossed in the middle and we dodged a bullet. We would not have made it had we not shifted to a, to a service business. So it's one of those things too is, you know, keep your eye on the ball, what's going on in the space. At that time I had five competitors. Now I have 30 and my product is commoditized. So what do we have to do today? How do we compete today? We, we compete on features and continue to bring new stuff to the market. And we do that through feedback from folks like you that say, we want something, this would help us grow our show, or this would help us give us information. So in the tech sector, even though we're now it's a, it's a SaaS, it's software as a service, you, you just, you know, you, you, you have to be aware of what's going on. You can't have your head stuck in the sand. Uh, too often, I think that happens is, and especially we're an older company, you do have to teach the old dog new tricks. You have to, because if you don't, and you look what's happening with AI right now, it, it's going to change the world completely. And knowledge workers are going to, if they're not on the ball with this, they're, in two or three years, they may find themselves without a job. So things are going to, even right now, are moving quickly in the space. and. You know, to be honest with you, going back to when I started my show, I had one goal <laughs> before, of course, my wife told me you need to make money. I was just trying to build authority. I wanted a press pass to at what the time was called the Consumer Electronics Show. It's now CES. I call it the CES show. But I just wanted a press pass to CES. That, that was my ticket to get in. 
And I got that. So I was building up authority to be able to get a press pass. So, you know, I did it out of pure desire just to go and hang out and check that show out. And then, it, you know, then things kind of morphed as time went on. When we think about startups, we've heard this term pivoting, right? And I think it never occurred to me that you're not actually pivoting the company. You're just kind of diversifying your ideas about where success and money is going to come from. And that is true for an individual just as much as it is for a company. Like I, I remember this is a, you know, kind of a standard joke that I tell anytime that I'm giving a presentation. Like one of the skills that brought money in for me was my ability to crimp like a Cat5 cable, right? If I had doubled down on that and said, no, this is what it's going to be forever, right? then I would not have a job right now. Yeah, you'd have missed out on fiber and everything else that came on. Absolutely. Absolutely, right. Software, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So like diversifying a skill base and like where where money, you know, the, the things that you do in your life and in your career that you can use to provide value to an employer or to a business, maybe your own business, that's diversification and, and you're basically uh, buffering yourself from from market forces uh, destroying you. And as you get older, let's be honest, you know, when you hit that 50 mark, and I'm 59, you know, your employability, unless you're staying current, goes down dramatically and you get more expensive for an employer. So you have to be that, that lady or that dude that's a subject matter expert in whatever you do. And one of the pieces of advice I got in the early days of being in the Navy, I had a very, very good friend. His name was Randy. And Randy was, uh, he was tough. He, he, was, he was hardcore. And he basically said to me, Todd, you just need to attach yourself to the smartest person in the room and suck them dry. Basically learn everything they know or everything they will tell you. And so I did that. I attached myself to who I thought was the smartest people in the room. And that has paid off in huge dividends because now uh, my CTO is fantastic. Her name is Lena. I attach myself to the smartest person in the room. And she is my right-hand person in the company that I trust her completely, but she's a heck of a lot smarter than me when it comes to the programming, the tech, and I'm not a coder. So I think it goes back to that saying, if you surround yourself, but I think it's more than surrounding yourself. I think if you are in a field that you're trying to stay current on, you need to become the person other people want to attach you to. But when you're early in your career, it's easy to be annoyed by that older, wise individual but they have so much experience. Like this one story I get, I, I like to tell, I was having this problem. It was a signal that was running down a wire. I was having reflected wave feedback. And that's a you know, electronics technical term. And it was literally kicking my butt. I'd been working on that for two or three days. And a senior fellow at Sandia National Lab was on the airplane. And I said to him, I said, hey, can, can you look at this and tell me? He said, well, Todd, what you got going on? And he's kind of mad scientist guy. He's got hair coming out of his nose, you know, but he's, he's, this, he's this genius. And he looked at that schematic and he says, you got a zero dB pad, go grab and put one right there. That'll fix it. And it did. But then I said, okay, how did you know that? So I tried to suck as much information from him to understand. And a 15 minute conversation I had with him literally fixed 
hundreds of problems that I had going forward years in advance. So when you have that opportunity to get help from a, like a genius and they can, they can bring this, the topic down to your level, man, you just need to just milk that dry. Cause what do they have? They, they've got experience that you, they've seen stuff you've never seen. So yeah, I think that's, you know, that advice that I got from my buddy, Randy, who I still best friends with today, uh, was probably one of those pivotal moments that was, gave me good career advice. Sorry, but we'll have to cut it right there for this week. First of all, if you are someone who has served in the military or is actively serving, we want to say a big thank you for your service from Nerd Journey to you. Todd spoke about his transition to civilian life after he got out of the Navy, and he mentioned it wasn't that difficult for him specifically because he had done a lot of work for civilians. But in many cases, that transition is not so easy for military personnel. So there's nothing wrong with getting help with that transition if you need it. And there are multiple support resources out there if one needs to take advantage of them. We didn't talk about it in extreme depth, but I really like the fact that the extreme injury Todd suffered wasn't such an overwhelming discouragement that he did nothing and got really depressed. In fact, he started tinkering around, looking on the internet. He occupied himself with something fun, which was podcasting. And did you notice the difference in the reasons he got into podcasting versus what his wife suggested he needed to do with that? He just wanted a pass to the Consumer Electronics Show. He was trying to build an authority, but she was thinking that he needed to figure out a way to make money because he was spending too much. I believe that each of us has a platform that we can use to ask for help. Maybe you don't have a podcast. Maybe you don't have a blog or make videos with a YouTube channel, but you likely have a LinkedIn profile or a Twitter account or even a Facebook account that you can use to tap into your professional and personal networks and ask for help. And Todd tells us he had already built a network of shows at the point where he asked for help saying, I need a lawyer and several other personas to help hammer out this deal with GoDaddy for his business, and they became some of the some of the first employees of Blueberry, all of them agreeing to work on this exciting thing in addition to their day jobs. It was just a part-time gig. But I would posit that no matter what you think, someone is listening to what you're saying out there, someone in your network, and we won't know if we can get the help unless we ask for it. So have you thought about something that you can ask for? Maybe it's to gain some expertise that you just don't have or to provide some guidance on something you'd like to learn. Todd told us about the advice from his friend Randy to find the smartest person in the room and learn as much as you can from them. But when you have an online network or people you can tap without having to be in the same room, maybe that is an even better benefit. I heard some good advice in there for the part-time business owner seems like a lot of people who decide to start businesses who have been on the show started them part-time before they pursued those full-time. 
Todd said that he had to get special permission from the Navy and really work to separate the business from his day job, only taking work calls during lunch and after hours. I would say that if you do want to do this, make sure and check with your company so that there aren't any conflicts of interest in advance, because you certainly don't want that coming to light after the fact. Todd spoke about some of the first products Blueberry had created were an utter failure, but they learned from it. They didn't dwell on it. They used it to make the next thing better. Not only were they willing to adapt the product strategy and go toward something better, something different, something more valuable to customers, but also the company focused to changing market conditions. When he saw the overall advertising revenue, total addressable market for advertising go down because of that flood, they went into full podcast hosting. And he even talks about some of his services being commoditized today and how they compete, which is on features. So they want to be building features that are valuable to their customers. Are we mindful of these changing conditions as individuals in terms of the demanded skills for not only the role we have, but perhaps the role we want or the thing we think we want to do next? You know, we've often talked about going to talk to people who do the thing you think you want to do. Maybe it's good to check in with those folks over time to see how their skills have changed or need to change or ask them how they've had to adapt within that role over the time period they've been in it. What are the new things they've had to learn and adapt to that maybe they didn't expect? Todd also gives some advice about seeking to be someone who is an expert or has some expertise that others would like to learn from so that maybe sometimes in certain conditions we can be that person that other people come to and ask for things. It doesn't have to be expertise in everything, but there's probably one or two or maybe even three areas where you're stronger than a lot of the people you work with, even if you have the same title that others on your team do. So be sure to sharpen and continue to sharpen those areas where you're strong. And again, look for ways to not only deepen the expertise, but maybe change up, change and adapt your focus of expertise over time. Maybe we can seek to become more like the T-shaped engineer Chris Williams described in episode 229. Well, that's it for part one. Stay tuned for part two, where we talk more about Todd's experience as the CEO of Blueberry and some of the things he's done, accomplished, and learned since taking over that role. We'll catch you then. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman. For Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.